0: And we were virtually camping out in the bush in a a really remote area where uh, there were no village. I mean, there were like the village was very small, grass huts type area. And once the sun went down, there was very little or next to no light in these areas. There weren't any nearby cities, no glow from street lamps, nothing. And one night, some of us took our flashlights and, and we went out to a nearby hillside. And when we got out to the clearing... We turned off our lights and then we looked up. And I'll never forget the glory of that moment. And you, you if you've been in a similar place, you know what I mean. There were innumerable stars. I mean, it would have been impossible to try to count them. Millions upon probably billions of stars that we could see. They went in every direction. And they were brighter than I'd ever seen before. And it was just from a human standpoint, one of the most glorious scenes I've ever, I've ever seen. Just very little pollution. It was, it was absolutely beautiful. Well, in Ephesians 2, Paul wants us to see a far greater glory than I saw that night. The dark night sky that he presents is the inky blackness of our depravity before God saved us. But Paul knows that the darker the sky, the brighter the stars shine. And God's glory radiates off the page as its brilliance stands in, in sharp contrast to what, what we saw about ourselves two weeks ago. So I know it's been a while, but do you remember where we left off? You can go ahead and open to Ephesians 2. Two weeks ago, we, we started a, a little two-part series in this chapter of Ephesians. We're calling it From Death to Life. Because that's what Paul describes for us. And he, he forced us, in the opening verses of that chapter, to look deeply into our former condition. What we were before Jesus saved us. In verse 1, he tells us that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Like spiritual cadavers. We were completely unresponsive to God. We may have had some religiosity... But God was distant and boring to us. He was someone we would think about later or, or vaguely relate to in some kind of emergency prayers. And that's because what really excited us, what got us going, what kind of revved the engine of our hearts, was the world and the things in the world and the things the world promised us. It's what we live for, Paul said in this, this opening, the opening verses of this chapter. And although we we thought we were free, you know, in and of ourselves, with our own free will, we thought we were free to pursue a life of sin, whether in secret or out in the open, we were really enslaved to Satan. That's what Paul says. We were held captive to do his will. But lest we kind of think of ourselves as the victims here, Paul doesn't get us off the hook that easily. We weren't forced against our own will to rebel against God. Paul said we gladly carried out our sinful desires. And that's because the very core of who we were, our very natures, were corrupt. And as a result, we were in the crosshairs of a perfectly just judge. We were children of wrath. That's what it means to be dead in sin. And that's what every one of us was before Christ saved us. And that's what every unbeliever today still is. We weren't flailing around in the ocean, needing to be rescued, just waiting on a life preserver so that we could grab it. We were dead at the bottom of the ocean, needing life, needing resurrection. Christ needed to swim down there, get us, bring us up to shore, and breathe new life into us. According to Paul, that was our spiritual state before God saved us. And we need revelation to tell us that. None of us would come to that conclusion on our own. It's totally foreign to to how we think. But Paul, in that that opening three verses, doesn't want to leave us there. He was headed somewhere with that description. He was presenting the black backdrop to the glory, the great glory of our salvation. And it's just my absolute joy and privilege to work through this part two uh, of the series today. I mean, it, it is... It is thrilling. If our, our former condition was worse than we thought it was, and it is, what God has done for us to save us is better than we would ever dare to dream. We wouldn't assume this for ourselves unless it was written in Revelation, just like we wouldn't assume how dead we were before, before Christ. So today, Paul's going to help us see the glory of our salvation in the remaining verses of this passage, verses 4 to 10. It's, it's our part two of our series. And just as we get going, if you're a believer in Christ today, just, I'll give you the application up front, okay? The net effect of this message should be to encourage you to the very end of your longest toe, all right? Like, that should be, that's the goal of what Paul wants for you, and what God wants for you out of this passage this morning. Christ wants to communicate to you the glory of His love for you if you're a believer in Jesus this morning. It's pride not to receive this. It's pride not to glory in it. It's pride not to thank Him for it and fall at His feet in worship as a result of it. It's unbelief to refuse Him who is speaking to you today to think that you're too bad or too sinful or too undeserving to receive the full radiance of the love that we're going to hear about. And if you're not a believer today, if you're faking the Christian life or kind of wandered in, whatever reason, you're here providentially, and you're what Paul describes in verses 1 through 3. You're still in that condition. But I'm praying that the Lord would use that description there and in this one today, just like he has in millions of other lives, to awaken your heart, and to experience what we're, what we're going to hear about today. The glory, of the good news of the gospel. And I pray that the Lord draws you by the glory of His love this morning to seek to be among those, to be among those whom Christ has saved. And you can be. So, where are we headed? This morning, Paul's going to answer three questions. Three questions about our, our glorious salvation. And before we launch in, let's just let's, let's read the passage again so it can be fresh in our minds. Look in verse 1, chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's our black backdrop. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. How? In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we pray um, that you would illumine our hearts, give us by the power of your Spirit, the ability to see and savor uh, these things that we read and study together this morning. Thank you even now for, for the revelation that, um, that you've provided about yourself and your love, how deeply and steadfastly you love us, and give us faith, grant us faith, strengthen our faith to believe it, and help us to see the, the implications that this should have in our lives this morning. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So, we're framing this up with three questions. That's the best I could do this morning to kind of, this is a kind of a complex text grammatically, so I'm just going to ask some questions and let Paul answer them, okay? So, as we, as we look at this, I think we're coming out of this one through three, and it is, it's dark. You know, nothing good in us. After the earlier description, it, it certainly wasn't anything in us that, that motivated God to save us. So, we have to ask this question. What, what motivated God? To save us if we're that bad. Because there wasn't anything good in us to motivate him to save us. So what actually did did motivate him? Paul tucks these in here in a a couple of phrases in this verse 4. And the first thing he says is God's mercy. His own mercy. His merciful character. It emanated out of the very heart of God. His mercy. Look, it says God... Being rich in mercy its a description of God and His character. And this description functions as a reason or a motive for God to act the way He has acted toward us. God is motivated to save because He is a God of mercy. It's fundamental to His character. In fact, I think we could argue from Scripture that it's at the heart of God's character to display His mercy. His heart bursts with kindness and compassion to those in need, particularly to you, each of you that have trusted Jesus. Mercy overflows from his character. It's it's in his very nature, like we've said, and he pours it out on pitiable creatures. The idea of doing mercy is the idea of doing kindness to someone who is in desperate need and they can't do anything about it. And, and Paul gets at this, this lavish nature of God's mercy when he says he's rich in mercy. In Greek, he pulls it to the front and he's emphasizing the richness of God's mercy. It's, it's awkward grammatically, but he's doing it to make a point. It's abundant and overflowing. He's, he's got a wealth of mercy at his disposal because it's emanating from his character. So in other words, not in you. That's not why he saved you, because of something good in you. He saved it because he wanted to demonstrate The glory of his mercy or in particular the richness of it and so that that motivated him and then paul could have stopped there but he piles on here just to just to reiterate it's his love that that motivates god to save us that motivated god to save he says it's because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses so it's like, okay, Paul, like, that's like doubly redundant. He said that, he just said God's rich in mercy. Now he's saying he loves. And then he reminds us again of what we were before he saved us. You, you see, the, see what he's doing here? It's not just, Paul doesn't say he just love, God is loving or he loves. He says he has great love. And it's the great love that motivated God to save us. And it had to be great. Because we are great sinners, right? It took great love to overcome our great sin. And God, at great cost to himself, loved us while we were his enemies. That's so fundamental where Paul's going in in this chapter. This love motivated God to act gloriously toward us. Even when we were dead and spiritually unresponsive, unable to come to God or do anything about our condition. His love is not because we're lovely, but he loves in order to make us lovely. That's the net effect of, of the transforming love of God. So, just right out of the gate, just want to draw your attention to this that, that love is what motivates God to save. And he loves you. He loves you with an eternal love that never changes, never diminishes, it doesn't grow weary, he doesn't grow tired of you if you're a believer in Jesus. <laughs> You experience the full brightness of his love always, at all times, in every place, under every circumstance. Because it's not contingent on you. It's contingent on the God who loves and his will and on the Christ that you're you're hidden in. (laughs) He loves you like he loves his son. And that's what it means to be in Christ that we've been seeing in this, this book. So, God's motive... In our salvation is his merciful love, his mercy and his love working together in our lives, Paul says here in this text. Leads us to a question. So, what exactly did God do for us? How does he describe it in this passage? Paul describes it in a lot of various ways in his letters, and the New Testament describes it in with metaphors and different things. But in particular, in this text, how does Paul describe it? Well, the main verbs are God, in, or the, the, the subject is God in verse 4. And look down in the middle of verse 5. God made us alive, number one, together with Christ. Verse 6, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Those are the three descriptions here of what God has done for us. These three main verbs, He's, he's made us alive. Paul says, he's raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, before we unpack each of these, I want you just to, to make a few observations here. Paul coined some words, which he kind of does sometimes, you know, uh, in Greek, to make this point that we are, we are participating with Christ in these actions. We could translate it like this. He has co-made us alive. He has co-raised us and co-seated us. So, he's not talking about us individually, but us in connection with someone else. And it's in connection with Jesus. So, what he's essentially saying is that everything Jesus obtained, everything from his righteous life, his resurrection, and his exaltation and enthronement that we learned about several weeks ago, all of that is applied to you in Christ. So, again, you see the repetition here. He seated us with Christ. You um, back up in, in made us alive together with Christ. So, you see, everything is centered in Jesus. What Christ accomplished, another way of saying this, is what Christ accomplished in his death, resurrection, and ascension is now transferred to everyone who believes in him. So, this is kind of hard to get our minds around because... Everything he describes here is coming for us one day. We will be made alive. We will be raised from the dead, literally. And we will be enthroned with Jesus, literally, in his kingdom. And everybody will see it. The whole world will see it. But that's not what Paul's talking about right here. Paul's talking about something that's already happened to us at our conversion. Okay? You see the difference? There is sort of like a foretaste of what's going to come. And there are certain realities that are true about us that Paul wants us to understand because he knows it will radically impact the way we live our lives. So what are those? What are these? What do these verbs mean? Well, first, he says he's, he's made us alive. So the way I would like that, the significance of that for us is he's given us new spiritual life. Or if you wanted a little a little bit more specific, he's given us new spiritual inclinations. New spiritual life, new spiritual inclinations. That's what it means when it says God made us alive together with Christ. God, by his grace, imparted spiritual life to you when you were dead. In theology, this is called regeneration. And it's 100% from God to you. That's why he uses the metaphor from death to life. Uh, In other words, your previously flatlined dead heart now has a spiritual heartbeat on the monitor. You're back from the dead, as it were. You're living and breathing toward God again. And God likes to do this, He glorifies Him. You have a new orientation toward God. Doesn't mean you're perfect but there's life now where there was deadness before there's a new orientation toward god there's new inclinations now to trust him when before you you had none of that instead of hating god in your heart now i'm not talking about outward expressions of hating cuz a lot of you probably didn't manifest the full the full depravity that you that was in you but the inward manifestations the desire to be your own god the desire to not want him the the feeling that God's your referee and He's always keeping things from you that you that you desire. That's different now. He is your redeemer. You don't hate him anymore. You love him. You see. You perceive His love for you. Instead of seeking to steal His glory away from Him all the time, and that's all you do, you now want Him to receive it. Something's changed deep inside of you. And this is what the Bible calls regeneration or John 3, new birth, being born again. It's the impartation of spiritual life. So how do you know if this has happened to you? Well, have you abandoned yourself to Christ? Do you know that you can't save yourself? Are you presently trusting in his word? Are you setting your life? Are you banking your life on what he says and not your own wisdom? That's faith. And get this even the smallest flicker of genuine faith is the evidence, hear me out, is the evidence that you have been regenerated, not the cause of your regeneration. You catch that? It's the evidence of your regeneration, not the cause. A dead person doesn't have any real faith in God. Remember, they're incapable of doing anything. But God grants faith through the preaching of His Word. Remember, where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Romans ten seventeen. There's lots of texts we could go to that talks about God granting faith. But faith, it's not like it comes later on in the process of conversion. It's right there as you're being born again. You think of a baby that comes out of the womb and it breathes because it's alive. Faith is the first gasp of air from the person who has been given new spiritual life. And life is exactly what God has imparted to you. And it's, it's kind of like at this point that Paul can't contain himself. Look in your, look in your verses in, in verse 5, or look in your chapter in verse 5. Most of the ESV puts it in uh, hyphenations. I don't even know what that's called. There's a grammatical word for it. Should have been prepared. Sorry, guess. Some, some put it in parentheses. But he says, by grace you have been saved. You know, it's kind of like he just wants to underscore the, the gracious nature of our salvation. And he, he gets a little ahead of himself. He's going to develop this out further into just a few verses of what he means by this, this, grace, this by grace you've been saved. But he he just has to underscore the gracious nature of this because you didn't do anything. You did nothing. And in fact, the grace itself imparted like it was a power that was at work toward you to regenerate you. It's not just like a gift, an unmerited gift that you could you could choose to accept or reject. Grace in this sense is a power. It is a power that transforms. It's a power that regenerates. It makes alive. It's by grace that you are that you are saved. So one one scholar put it like this. He said, grace is not merely unmerited favor in the sense that one may choose to receive or reject a gift. Grace is the impartation of new life. Grace is a power that raises someone from the dead, that lifts those in the grave into new life. Grace is not merely an undeserved gift, though it is such. It is also a transforming power. I love that. Now, as amazing as this is, I mean, that's, that's like, well, we could stop there, you know, like end of sermon, be encouraged. Uh, he doesn't stop there. It gets even better. He says that God has given us access to resurrection power. He's given us access to resurrection power. Paul says in verse six, the beginning of verse six, that God has raised us up with him. God has raised us up with him. And what does he mean? I've not been resurrected literally from the dead, but I've been raised up with Christ. We will be raised up with him literally, but he's saying we've already been raised up with Christ. Well, in what sense, Paul? I think his point is that we've been raised up in the sense that we now, as new living people, we have access to new resurrection power in Christ. And that that's what he said in chapter one. That God demonstrates his power by raising Jesus from the dead and enthroning him. So, power is associated with the resurrection. So, we now have access to new resurrection power. You think of the familiar phrase that we say in baptisms. You're raised to walk in newness of life. That's the idea. Resurrection, spiritual resurrection, leads to new life and and a, and a power to walk in that new life. That resurrection power is available to us now via Christ's resurrection. We may not tap into it all the time. We may wonder about it. We may doubt it. But it's there. That's reality for the believer. The same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is now given to us to help us slay the resident evil passions of our flesh that we were enslaved to when we were dead. Okay? We now have access to His power to live differently now, to live gloriously now, to live purposefully now, to live redemptively now. It doesn't mean the battle is going to be easy, (laughs) but it does mean that the power is there and it's at our disposal. This should give us tremendous hope in sanctification. We have been raised with Christ. That is an objective reality for you. Without it, there would be no sanctification. And this uproots some lies just real quick. He says, I'll, I'll never see progress in this sin pattern. Right? That's what we think. Uh, no. Not according to this. You have resurrection power at your disposal. And guess what? God raised you from the dead. So he's got an agenda for your life, and he's going to see to it that you grow. I'll always be in bondage to this sin. No. Not according to this truth. I have no power to overcome this sin. No. Not according to this truth. You see what I'm saying? This lays the foundation. Now, there's a lot more to build on that in terms of practical sanctification, but that's the foundation. So that's amazing. He's given us access to resurrection power. And then, number three, now this is interesting. He has given us an unthinkable position. He's given us an unthinkable position. Paul says, we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, we've been seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What's He talking about? We pull up a chair to Christ's table. Uh, what What does He mean by this? Well, remember back in chapter one, when Paul say Paul says, just look back there with me in verse twenty. He's talking about the power of God. And the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, where? At his right hand. That's on a throne. In the heavenly places. And then he underscores this. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Meaning, Christ did in control of everybody and everything. Okay? He's, he, he is reigning over everything. Demons included. And he says here, that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. So what does this imply? Okay, well, I'm, I'm not, that's coming in its fullest sense one day. As I reign with Christ, Paul says we'll judge angels. We will execute his government and governance over the new creation. That's all coming. But we get a foretaste of it now. So I think it implies a couple things. I didn't write these on the on the PowerPoint, so you can write them down. I think it, this this implies that we've been liberated. Meaning, we were once held captive by Satan and his hordes. And now, because, because and by Christ, we've been seated with him far above every rule and authority and power and dominion. So, it implies liberation. And right along with that, I think it implies protection. Okay? So, we were once Satan's captives. Enslaved to him to do his will. But now, Christ our King, as we've been seated with him in a position of authority over those guys. All right? Nothing happens to us now except at Christ's permission and for his purposes. They will not have the final victory over us. And I think, lastly, not only liberation, protection, also it implies, number three, authority. Authority. Now, I mean, nuance this. I'm not saying we run around casting out demons. All right? That's not what I mean by authority. There is a sense in which we share in Christ's reign now. Meaning, Christ uses us here on earth as we pray, as we share the gospel, as we love and disciple other people. In other words, he's going to go here in Ephesians 6 when he talks about spiritual warfare. And it's not about casting out demons. It's about clothing yourselves for battle. Through prayer, through righteousness, through the gospel. uh, Just the basics of the Christian life. So, in other words, we have authority now. We have have authority with Christ's sort of regal position on earth, even though the world doesn't recognize that, to advance his, his purposes and his kingdom. We've been seated with him. We are like his regal ambassadors. We're the heirs of this world living incognito in enemy territory. That's the idea. And that's your identity. That's who you are if you believed in Jesus. Nothing short of that. Now, this is insane. Note the contrast from where we were to where we are. And I tried to think of some illustrations to grasp this. Imagine a terrorist against the U.S. government who wants to bring it, wants to bring it down. He is brought in, pardoned by the president, and given a position on his cabinet. That's insane. Okay? Uh, a little bit different. Maybe if we're a monarchy, trying to usurp the king to being forgiven by him and made an heir to the throne. That's the idea. (laughs) Why? Why that? That's our next question. Why did God do this? And Paul wants us to be really clear about this. He doesn't want any confusion about why God has chosen to do it this way. Number 1, he wants to make us eternal trophies of his grace. You are, if you believed in Jesus, an eternal trophy of his grace to be put on display and marveled at in the new heavens and the new earth. Not you being marveled at, but you because of what you represent. The grace of God. Look in verse 7. He did this so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God saved us like He did. So that throughout eternity, He can showcase something. Paul calls it the immeasurable riches of His grace. By the way, that's a great little phrase for the book of Ephesians. (laughs) The immeasurable riches of His grace. But did you get that? God wants to display to the cosmos in the ages that are coming, plural, to every creature how immeasurably wealthy his grace is. And how is he going to do it? Through you. And not because you did anything, <laughs> because he did something for you. You are his eternal exhibit A of immeasurably rich, infinitely undeserved grace. And he will continue to lavish you with his kindness throughout eternity to continue to reinforce this. Every single one of God's created creatures, his innumerable angels, the seraphim and cherubim, they will all look to you to see how gracious God is. And that's why he saved you like he did. (laughs) Isn't that unspeakably good news? You never deserve God's love, ever. And you never will. Even when you're glorified, you'll be glorified by His grace. Eternally, you never deserve His love. And He will always give it. It will never abate or diminish. And it's all because He's supremely glorified by being kind to you. You can't outgrace Him. You can't outbless Him. You can't repay Him. You can only receive from Him. That's how he's designed it. Isn't that astonishing? And that's his initial answer to why he continues. He gives us a few more answers and we've got to cover these quick. The next one is to eradicate all our pride. To eradicate all of our pride. We can, um, well, We already feel this already, don't we? Um, Hard to be proud standing standing in this position. But Paul takes two verses to say this directly and emphatically. It's like we need this iterated and reiterated for some reason, i.e. our pride that we continue to struggle with on a daily basis. All right, so look in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You say it differently. Not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. No boasting is allowed, except in Jesus, in the new heavens and the new earth. That's how God has designed it. Paul drives home the fact that we contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation. All we do is come with empty hands to receive it. That's faith. That's what he means. We're saved by grace through faith. And Paul, in the grammar of this text, take, it's a little too long to explain this now, but he, he includes faith as part of the package gift. Well, why don't I try to give it a shot? This is not of yourselves, where he says that right there. If you see it, uh, this is not your own doing. At the middle of verse 8. The word this in Greek is a demonstrative neuter pronoun. The words grace and faith, the nouns grace and faith are feminine. And in Greek, the neuter, if he wanted to pinpoint one of those, he would have used the same gender. But he didn't. He used the neuter demonstrative pronoun, which means he's referring to the whole previous clause. The package, the gift, which is salvation by grace through faith. is a gift. So that no one may boast. What's he saying? Even our faith, even us coming with being willing to come with empty hands to receive it is a gift. And this undercuts human pride at its most fundamental level. It eradicates all of our arrogant boasting before God. This is why works based religions are such an affront to God. And this is why we must work diligently in our hearts and in the church to eradicate pride. Only boasting that should be taking place is bragging on our Lord. And finally, the last answer for why Paul saves us the way he does is to enable us to live as his new humanity. To enable us to live We live in good works as his new humanity. Look in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Can't even boast in those. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by works, but we're saved for works. But in particular, he's saying God did it this way. He he imparted new life to us to enable us to live as his new humanity. God resurrects a new kind of human for himself. Paul ends the section by calling us God's workmanship. And he in, in this, this verse, he brings in a new metaphor, and it's kind of implicit, it's hard to see because we're already seeing resurrection, life, new life. But he brings in the creation metaphor. He uses language that's reminiscent of creation, when God made all there is out of nothing. And what Paul is saying is that our conversion is nothing short than a recreation. The beginning of the restoration of humanity to the way that God always intended it to be. And he's going to blow this out in the next few verses, in the rest of this chapter, about the new humanity that he's he's created. So we're going to see that next week, Lord willing. So what does he intend from this new humanity? Pretty clear that we pursue good works now from our new nature. We are outfitted, if you will, for good works now because we've got a new nature. That's not just inclined to sin all the time. Before we couldn't truly do good works in a way that pleased God, but now we can. And this is all part of God's plan. Even our obedience is part of God's plan. He predestined to save us. We saw that in chapter 1. But he also predestined that we would grow in holiness. That's what he means. He he marked them out beforehand. He created these works beforehand for us to walk in. He wants us to progressively learn to live like people of the new creation. As this passage comes to a close, Paul has moved full circle. I want you to see this. Before we were saved, he said that we were dead and that we walked in sin. Right? We walked. That was the meaning, the metaphor for the way we lived our lives. Totally characterized by sin in our hearts. And now he has saved us to walk differently. To live differently. He uses the same verb, to walk in good works. So the point is that he's taken us from death to life. That a glorious transformation has occurred and Paul is going to spend the back half of this book trying to help us connect those dots of what it means to walk in this newness of life. But today, I just want to lay on you that the good news is better than we think. The beauty of the gospel shines brilliantly against the black backdrop of our sin, just like those stars just were brilliant against the, the black backdrop of that inky night sky. And if you're a believer here today, God has given you the very opposite of what you deserve. You deserve His wrath, and yet He has given you the most tender expression of His love and the greatest honor imaginable for His creatures. Greater than the angels. And it's important that these truths seep into your soul by faith. So, how do they seep in? What's the seep process? If you will. Well, here's a few things. Whoa, I didn't put any. This is a boom right there. There you go. They're all up here. No animations on this one. Just going to highlight big picture stuff. I know that we've just got a few more or really no more minutes. Real quick, we have to uproot the lies that, that threaten these truths. Lies like, God has saved me, but he doesn't like me very much. You ever feel that way? Lies like, God is punishing me for my sin. No, not if you're in Christ. You're never going to experience a drop of God's wrath. Loving discipline to make you more like Jesus? Yeah, but not judicial wrath. Can you grieve the heart of your father by sin? Yes. Does this alter his love for you? No. No. His love is never abated; it never waxes or wanes because it emanates from him from himself, and it flows to you through Christ. God never punishes us for sin. God doesn't care how I live because He loves me no matter what. Right? That's kind of the, the air of our day. Well, yes, God is eternally committed in love to you. That's true, and that love will do what is best for you. It'll make you holy. <laughs> To say that God isn't concerned with your growth is like saying a parent doesn't want his child to develop. It doesn't care if the kid never learns to talk or eat by himself or stop pooping in his pants or whatever. That's crazy. The Lord wants us to grow. He's actually planned more than that. He's planned them out beforehand, our growth. And he's committed to helping us get there. He definitely does care how you live. So there's, that's just some sampling of lies that these truths sort of uproot. And then we've got to actively choose to believe these truths that we've seen here. In spite of how we feel. That's key. So don't trust your fluctuating feelings when it comes to God's love. That's how we're tempted to think about love. Emotive, right? I mean, everybody thinks that way. So if I don't feel it, it must not be there. It must not be true. It must not be real. You can't get any more true or real than the the written text of Scripture. Okay? So, we want to bank our lives on that, not on our fluctuating feelings when it comes to God's love. So there's an active choice to believe what we see here. And then there's an active choice to let these truths define your reality and govern your day-to-day existence. Meaning, when you wake up, you're going to have to fight to believe these things. But they should shape your reality. What you, what you believe is true, no matter what you feel or perceive in this world or what the world tells you is true. And this, as you grow in that faith, will be to bring glory to God. And then, and then finally just rejoicing and resting in these truths are aspects of, of choosing to believe them. Resting in them, just breathing easy in the fact that God has saved you. <laughs> Rejoicing in them, um, resting in these truths, those are aspects of, of resigning yourself, actively choosing to believe these truths. And then it, it's really number three, it's hard to understate the importance of believing these truths as they're as they're stated here in this text, because they provide the foundation for the Christian life that Paul's going to develop in chapters four through six. And if you miss it here, you won't get how to live. One quick example is in chapter 4. He says in chapter 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, literally being gracious to one another, that same grace word group, being gracious to one another as God in Christ was gracious to you. So he's our pattern. What we've experienced becomes our pattern for how we forgive even the most atrocious sins against us. Sins within the church. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Do you hear how he's rooting it in that? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So our little piddly Christian lives are just attempts to imitate the little flickers of the burning sun of God's love toward us. And if you don't get it, You're not going to forgive, which means if you're struggling to forgive, there's some deficiencies in this area, right? We all struggle to forgive at times. You elevate yourself. You think more of yourself. You're proud in your sin. You need to be humbled by Ephesians 1 through 3 and then further humbled by his grace toward you. That will give you the ability to forgive and to live the Christian life. So more on that, man, we're going to unpack that like crazy in the back half of this book when we get there, okay? Um, But for now, let's just, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for the unspeakable privilege to be part of this and teach these things. And we pray that those who know you in this room would be strengthened, and those who don't, that you would awaken their souls through a message like this to, to truly come to know and trust in the Messiah. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.